Uh, anyways, Chad said, my name's Aaron, and uh, I'm the lead pastor, and I'm usually over at uh, the Maryville location of our church, and I get to be with you guys last week in this, and this is, uh, as a first time, I think I've ever been here with you guys two weeks in a row, so it kind of, it feels pretty good. Uh, it's nice, nice and warm. Uh, we started uh, last week a series called Dead, we- Dead Wood, just a little, um, just a little uh, two-part series that we will wrap up today. And Deadwood, not like the TV show. I've actually never seen the TV show. Um, Deadwood is, and I'll do a quick recap here. That's that's limbs, that's down trees, that's brush that accumulates on a forest floor. Um, and what happens is there are these naturally occurring forest fires that purge out the deadwood that accumulates on the forest floor because um, after a while, that deadwood can start to sort of suffocate the life of the forest. It can bog everything down. And so those fires are necessary to come and let the forest sort of breathe again. But those are not the devastating forest fires that, that uh, demolish the forest and burn out the topsoil. They're not like that. They're the ones that burn low and under control, these naturally occurring forest fires that clear out Deadwood. Now, um, and I talked about this last week, the National Park Service, they are really good at um, preventing forest fires. And they got so good at preventing forest fires that they created a new problem, which is that there was too much deadwood accumulating um, in our national parks. Um, and that is two problems. Number one, as I already said, it can sort of suffocate the life of the forest and too much of that builds up. Um, and then the other reason is if there is a lightning strike or a, uh, a somebody flips a cigarette or some sort of spark then that then triggers a fire when there's too much deadwood accumulated. Now there's so much fuel that that fire will burn really, really hot. And it will be one of those devastating fires that demolish the forest. And so they do something uh, which I think is really mind-boggling is they will intentionally start forest fires. So the people who have done great work to stop forest fires will start forest fires um, but not the devastating ones, the ones that burn low and under control so that the forest can come alive again. And, and they call that a controlled burn, or I love this phrase, a prescribed fire. They say this forest needs a prescribed fire. There's too much deadwood that is accumulated. And when they do that, what's amazing is after the fire, every part of the ecosystem flourishes. The whole, uh, the, the whole forest really comes alive in a way that it couldn't before. Now, what we said last week is that we're, we're pretty much the same. <laughs> that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of how we operate, too. If we think of our lives and our relationships as a forest, then in our own lives and relationships, there is dead wood that accumulates because there's just a certain amount of death that comes from life in a fallen world. And um, there will be the brokenness of our lives that inevitably works its way into our relationships and causes messes, and we end up dragging a lot of baggage around. Um, So we're kind of just like that. And just like with the forest, if we let too much of that stuff accumulate in our relationships, then we, like, become tinderboxes, like one spark, and then the whole thing could be one of those devastating fires. Have you ever gone to lunch or dinner with a couple, and then they, like, somebody says one tiny little thing that's just a little bit off color, and they're about to murder each other? That's because they got dead wood, y'all, like lots of it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, so unfortunately, I fairly regularly will have a conversation that goes like this, Pastor, our marriage is over. And I say, oh, gosh, what happened? They're like, oh, this one tiny little thing happened. I'm like, no, no, that's not what happened. One spark hit all that dead wood, and the whole thing went up in flames. So uh, because of that, we need prescribed fire 
in our lives, in our relationships. We need ways to deal with the messes that accumulate, especially in our relationships. The Bible gives us a couple ways that we can do that. Last week, we talked about repentance. Repentance is how we clear out the dead wood that accumulates between us and God. When we've got unrepentant sin, the Bible said it keeps us from seeing him and it keeps him from hearing us. It's a distance in our relationship. It's dead wood. Repentance clears that out. And as we said last week, that's a really hard thing to do, a really beautiful thing to do, a really powerful thing to do. This week, um, we're going to talk about how we clear out the dead wood um, that comes between you and other people, the people you love and care about, the stuff that after a while, when it builds, can suffocate and even snuff out your relationships. And once again, um, it, is a, it is a hard but beautiful thing. I need to sort of confess a little bit now. Like last week, I, I said, you know, there's at least two ways in Scripture that the Bible tells us we can clear out deadwood, and I said, you're really not going to like this first one, and I said that in a way that maybe implied that you would like the second one, um, but that's just because I wanted you to come back this week. Um, you, this, this one might be worse. You might like this one um, even less, uh, but before, before I tell you what it is, um, let me just say this. A big part of what separates us from the animals is our capacity and our willingness to essentially negotiate with the future and to say, I'm going to do something, like I'm going to withhold something good now so that I can have something great later, or I'm going to do something hard now in order to avoid, in order to avoid something devastating later. The capacity to negotiate with the future is a big part of what separates from the, us from the animals. It's crucial that we do the hard things in the midst of the day-to-day so that we don't face the devastating things down the road. So with that in mind, I'm talking about part of what separates from the animal, us from the animals. Um, today, let's talk about confession. Let's talk about um, the way we clear the mess when we have let people down that we love and care about. Um, confession is an admission of guilt. And just to be very clear, um, it is when you do the hard but, but completely necessary work of, I love you, swallowing your dang pride and going to the person or the people who you have failed along the way in one way or another, looking them in the eye with courage and integrity and saying, in no uncertain terms, I was wrong. And this is how, naming it. Specifically, these are the things that I have done. And you make that admission. I want to be very clear. You do not do that to clear your conscience, although that can be a nice side effect. Um, you do that in order to seek forgiveness and to begin the work. That's not the whole thing, but to begin the work of trying to heal the damage that has been caused by the way in which you failed possibly the people that you love. Now, um, <clears throat> I'm going to give a couple of notes here on confession just to sort of give us a foundation so we're all like clear that we're talking about the same thing. So when I talk about confession, a question I often get is, okay, so who exactly am I supposed to confess to? And this is a, it sounds simple, but it can get really complicated. And it's like, do I need to go find a priest? Do I have to go, who do I need to talk to? How exactly do I work this out? Um, so for that, um, first, here's a good rule of, of thumb. I think it's really helpful. You confess your sins to their level of harm. Uh, or we could put it this way. Confession should be as, as widespread or as prolific as the damage done by the, by the wrongs that you have done. So, uh, for example, 
um, if I sin against God, and by the way, the Bible is explicit about this. If I sin, then I sin against God. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that. So if I sin against God, then I need to confess that sin to God. If I sin against you, then I need to confess that sin to God because as the Bible are explicitly says, all sin is against God. And I need to confess that sin to you because I confess that because I sin against you. If I sin against a group, I need to confess to God because all sin is against God. And I need to confess to the group. Is that making sense? All right, that wasn't enough response, so I'm going to give you an example. Um, I was uh, having a really bad day. Uh, I was at, at the Maryville location of our church. It was, I was working. I had a really bad day. I had a searing headache. I was in a foul, foul mood. And the best thing, like my duty to the church on that day as an employee of the church, the most important thing for me to do in that moment was to shut up and go home. That's what I needed to do to serve the church that day. But I did not do that. Instead, I just walked around brooding, okay? And then my wife, Sharon, Sharon works at the church as well. Um, uh, my wife did something wrong. Um, it, she apologized. It was a very small thing. But did I act like it was a very small thing? No, I acted like it was the end of the universe. I completely overreacted. Let me see if, if you guys are still paying attention. Raise your hand if you've ever overreacted. That should be all of us. Great. So let's just pretend that this is our story, okay? So I overreacted. I lost my temper. I acted like a jerk. Like full stop, I sinned against Sharon, period, right? So what's the work now that needs to be done? I sinned against God because I harmed his daughter, and he loves her more than I do, so I'm like looking for lightning, okay? So I need to confess to... To God, because I've sinned against him, I need to go and confess to my wife. That was step one that afternoon when I started on cleanup duty. So I had, to, I had to confess to her, and she was quite gracious about it, actually. And here's the thing, though. Do you ever have one of those arguments that, like, don't stay in one place? You ever had an argument that makes its way to every corner of your home? Okay, well, this is one of those arguments that made its way through every corner of the church building, weirdly enough. There's weird things about being a pastor who works with your wife. So uh, we just, we, it was an argument on the go, you know, and at one point I entered into the orbit of David Hawkins. He's our worship leader over there, and this is the, this is the worst, man, because... David, um, it was in the middle of a pandemic. He had just moved from Phoenix. He was like brand new to the church. And then suddenly in his space, we entered his space, his like two bosses, the founding pastors of the church walk in having a lover's quarrel. Uh-oh. Check, check. There we go. Walk in having a, a lover's spat. And then I have this great idea. Let's pull David in on this. Because this is something I had talked to David about before, and this is a horrible sentence I'm about to say. Maybe I can use David as leverage against Sharon. That's what my stupid, sinful brain thought. So I was like, David, what do you think about this? What's the story? You know, And he did a great job of answering but saying nothing, which is the right move in the moment. So what I've done is I've just put him in this horrible position. Right, like on like a number of levels. He's just in this rotten position. So that afternoon, I'm calling David. David, man, I put you in. It was a no-win situation. I'm really sorry. Thanks for handling it well. Will you please forgive me? I got to clean up this mess. And he was like too gracious. He was like, oh, yeah, man, no problem. No worries. Everything's fine. He was super, super kind. Um, but there was another leg to this argument, and we kept gorking our way. And at one point, we made our way into my children's space. And so they heard their dad acting like a jerk, sinning against their mom. So now I've brought them into it, and I've got to sit them down. And I do. They're both here. They'll say it's true. I had to sit down with my kids and say, guys, I'm sorry. I, 
I, you heard it. I acted like a jerk. And they were like way less gracious than David. They were like, yeah, dad, what the heck was that about? Like, what, what is your deal? <laughs> you know? So it took me a minute to get through it, but then they forgave me and we worked it out. Said all that to say, because that sin was, had these sort of concentric circle, circles, it had this sort of widespread damage, the measure of my confession had to extend, had to be as widespread as, or as prolific as the sin itself was, okay? Hope that makes sense. The next thing is, uh, you know, I hear people will ask this question, don't I need to confess all of my sins to somebody? Um, and especially if maybe you've got some Catholic background, that could, that could be landing in your, in your orbit, could be one of your thoughts. Um, and the verse that we read earlier, James 5.16, which is like the central verse for the subject of confession, says this, I love this, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. I love it when the commandment is so closely connected to the promise that goes with it. Confess your sins to one another. Why? Because you'll be healed. That's why. Because it's really that powerful. Now about that verse, the best I can tell, and I, I like looked at a bunch of like wrinkly-brained Bible scholar types, and everyone that I could find all agreed that this text is saying you should confess your sins against one another to one another. So confess the person to the person you sinned against, not confess all of your sins to one another. So um, well, I'll just say you've probably come across this. That thing that people do where they run around just spilling their guts to anybody who will listen. And people could do that for a variety of reasons. Some good, not, some, some reasons good, some not good. It, guys, it's, it's really not necessary. It's really not necessary. And like in the not great instances, that could be more of like a ploy for attention. Um, it could be, as we talked about morbid repentance last week, it could be an attempt to try to justify yourself, to prove to God how sorry you are because you're confessing, you're dirty, airing your dirty laundry to everyone who will listen. Or maybe it's an attempt to look really, really holy to your friends. There's a lot of reasons why that might not be right down the line a great thing to do, and it's really not necessary. Now, on the other side of that, let me just sort of make another statement to sort of balance that one out. I'm not saying that you do not need a handful of really close, trusted confidants, because you do. You do. Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin. So if one of you is going to encourage me daily, that means with the goal that I not be hardened by sin, well, that means we're going to have to have a really close relationship. That means every day, we're not just talking, we're talking about life. We're getting into the real stuff every single day. And if you're doing that for me on a daily basis with the goal that I not be hardened by sin, that means you need to know all the ways in which I tend to struggle and stumble into sin. I need to be, you need to know the whole deal. I need to sit you down, be completely forthright, and say, guys, or, or guy, gal, whoever it is, look, I, I am sinful in this way. I can be prideful in this way. I can be lustful in this way. I lose my temper under these circumstances. I'm vulnerable in these areas. Like, that person needs to know the whole deal. If they're going to do what that text says, which is encourage me daily, that I won't be hardened by sin. And so we need a handful of really close, trusted relationships, people who know your whole deal. So, yes, everything to someone, but not everything to everyone. Does that make sense? We're good? Heads nod? It helps me out. It just makes me know that you're with me. Thank you so much. Even if you don't mean it, it, it's, it helps me. Um, 
Okay, so with that as our foundation, I, I want to focus in on a confession that heals individual relationships. And, you know, when you sin against someone and you seek them out and you, and, you, and you try to make it right when you wrong them or fail them in some way. And for that, let's go back to this deadwood idea, if you can sort of picture the forest with a lot of deadwood. Um, if we think of our lives as a forest, stay with me, I, I think we can pretty easily think of our relationships as trails in the forest that we have cleared to one another. So if you and I have a relationship and our life is a forest, then our relationship is a trail that we have cleared out so that you have ready access to me and I have ready access to you. Um, And if we have a relationship like that and I sin against you, then that's an obstruction on the trail. It makes it a little bit harder for you to get to me and for me to get to you. It's deadwood that separates us. And that has to be cleared out. There's a guy, Steve Duncan, he's, he's over at the Maryville location, and he is a, a volunteer for the national parks, and he walks the trails. Like, he spends hours and hours doing this. He walks the trails for the purpose of clearing out the deadwood that will accumulate on the trails. The trails that you walk on when you visit the national park will not remain clear unless there are people intentionally maintaining those trails and clearing the path so that there's not resistance on that path. Our relationships are the same way. Now, I mentioned earlier that, that, I, that I'd sinned against David. I put him in a really rough spot. And I said he was really gracious, and he didn't make it. He was like, no big deal. Everything's fine. Here's what I could have done. I could have thought, okay, David is like, and this is true, he's like the most laid back, easygoing guy. He's hard to offend, okay? It's not like he ran off crying. You know, it's not like he won't take my calls. It's not like our relationship is devastated now. It's just this sort of weird thing, but everything's going to be fine. And I don't actually have to have that conversation and we'll be okay. And on a very real level, that's true. Like, we could, I've not had that conversation and been okay. But in so doing, hear me on this, in so doing, I would have made a choice to let some deadwood start to accumulate on the David and Aaron trail. And as I think I've already made it pretty clear, um, I screw up kind of a lot. And David and I work together pretty closely. So guess what? It's not going to happen one time. It's going to happen again and again. I'm going to be forgetful. I'm going to be thoughtless. I'm going to be uncaring. I'm going to let him down in a variety of ways. And it's going to be more and more brush and dead wood that starts to accumulate in our relationship. And none of those things are that big of a deal. I didn't reply to your text message or I was late for a meeting or, you know, none of those things are a big deal that are just going to destroy the relationship, but it does begin to erode trust and it starts to paint the picture that I'm not overly concerned about him or his feelings and it makes the path between him and me harder every time. There's more and more resistance that builds up and eventually over time, stuff like that will block the path. There's a chance that you have relationships in your past, maybe going back to high school or maybe someone in your extended family. Or It's like, no, we didn't have like a big knockdown drag out and I could call them and they'd probably answer. But, oh, you think, oh, there's just so much work to pick up the phone and have that conversation. Why? Because the path between you is littered with just a whole bunch of stuff that's accumulated over time. This is why we need, again, this prescribed fire thing. We need to do the hard stuff along the way to maintain the relationship, keep the path clear. Now, hopefully you're still with me. Connected to this, I've sort of indicated with the David example that, you know, it could just be one little thing and another little thing. Before you know it, it's a bunch of little things, and all of a sudden the relationship's in real trouble. It doesn't always work like that. Um, Sometimes it's like one 
really big thing. Like it's not some leaves and brush. It's more like timber. <laughs> and it's this huge downed oak on the trail. That big thing that completely blocks the path between you and that person. Um, and it can't just be brushed aside like a down limb can be. Um, and in order to clean up the mess, because it's a big one, it's going to take a lot of work to clear that path. To that, I just, I just want to say lovingly, as, even though I know it's really hard, so be it. So be it. Like, grab a chainsaw and get to work because Jesus is our example in everything. And as we talked a lot about last week, Jesus literally suffered and died in ways that we could not begin to fathom in order to clear the deadwood between you and him. What he has demonstrated is that maintaining and healing relationships is worth a tremendous cost, and he paid it in ways we cannot begin to fathom. It's worth it. So, um, quickly, let's, let's talk about what you are and are not doing when you confess your sin against someone else. So, uh, the best example of a confession that I can find in Scripture is in Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. If you're a church kid, you totally know that story. Um, like that one in the Good Samaritan, I think those may be top the list of Jesus parables that make it into Sunday school. Um, but just in case you're not familiar with that one, I'll give you the quick, we aren't all Sunday school rats, I know. So um, basically you got a father, two sons, the younger of the two sons um, decides he doesn't want to be part of his family anymore, but he does want his inheritance. And so he goes to his father and says, I want to leave. Can you just give me the money now? So which, if you think about it, is saying, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead because I want your money, but I don't want you. And so it's really, really devastating. And, but the father agrees and says, yeah, okay, you can, take, which you can take your inheritance now, which, by the way, if you think about it, would just be so damaging to the entire family's financial system. And the guy's sort of in a rebellious mode, so he takes the money and he goes and squanders it in the most foolish ways. And before he knows it, it's all gone, and he's destitute, and his entire life is a shambles, and his relationships back home are all destroyed. And so to be very clear, this one's a downed oak, okay? This is not a few leaves and branches on the way. This is a downed oak for sure. And finally, he decides. He hits rock bottom. There's clarity at rock bottom. You don't get elsewhere. And he decides he's going to go home and face his failures and speak to his father and try to make it right. And on his way there, he practices his confession. And the confession that we hear from him um, is, I think, a really useful model for us. This is Luke 15, 18, and 19. Let me read it to you. It comes in three parts. First, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So we're going to take this one phrase at a time, but quickly, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. What he's doing, first of all, he's acknowledging, I haven't just sinned in a vague sort of I did a bad spiritual thing, but in a very specific way, I've sinned against you. He's owning it. He's naming it. He's looking him in the eye and say, I caused damage to you. I hurt you. I ransacked our family. I'm going to look him in the eyes, and I'm going to acknowledge the hurt. I'm not going to try to downplay it. I'm going to acknowledge. I didn't just sin against God. I sinned against you. It's personal. It's damaging. And it's clear that he is under no illusion that he can just say the magic word, and it's all going to be better. And that becomes more clear in the second statement, which is, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's why this is important. I mean, this is a sad statement to make, but here's why it's important. 
he's acknowledging, just because I said I'm sorry doesn't mean that I now expect everything to just be okay. I'm not so naive to think that just because I said I'm sorry that now the relationship is just going to go right back to, the where, to where it was before as if nothing happened. I acknowledge I'm going to have to, if you let me, re-earn your trust. I acknowledge that the damage I caused was huge, and that's going to change the relationship. And I don't want that, but that's okay because my goal is to serve you. My goal is to clean up the mess and make it right. Guys, you cannot say, I'm sorry, and in the next breath, demand a full restoration because you said you're sorry. It doesn't acknowledge the reality of the human heart. And in the next statement, he says, make me like one of your hired servants, which clearly signals, hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm ready to do, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I want to do the work. Whatever it takes to make this right, to re-earn trust, to re-establish myself, to restore our relationships. I'm not making any demands. I'm just asking for the opportunity to do the work and clear the path between us because this is a downed oak and I put it here and I'm going to do whatever it takes. That, guys, that's a confession. That's how you do it. Now, um, the wrap-up, I'm about done. Um, I, but this part here, please don't miss this part, even though it's toward the end. Um, I know you get listener fatigue, but you can't miss this. I, w- I want to talk about the difference between confessing to God and confessing to a person, because there's a really big difference, a number of them, between confessing to God and confessing to a person. Um, last week, uh, we talked about this, and, and this is the gospel. This is the most beautiful thing in the world. This is what happens when you confess to God. Repentance is what we talked about last week. When you sin against God, here's the thing. The penalty for your sins, all of them, all of your sins were paid. They were, in some sense, they were like prepaid through the cross. Like all of your sins were future sins when Jesus died for your sins. And so he paid the price for all of them before you ever even committed them through the cross. It's not like that with your buddy or your spouse. And Jesus, through the cross, he made this very clear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. He has already decided to forgive you fully and to restore you fully. And he's already paid the price to do that in full. Not like that with your buddy. Not like that with your spouse. Also, think about it. Just the difference between, you know, who he is and who we are. The difference between the two. God's love is mercy and it is infinite. And therefore, that means his capacity to forgive and restore are infinite. And none of ours is. When you put that all together, what that means is when you come to the Lord to confess your sins to him, the record of all of your sins is wiped away instantly. And the relationship which was damaged by your sin is now restored in full instantly. And the path is cleared by God in full in one mighty merciful sweep of his arm. It's all fixed. And when we confess our sins to one another, guys, it's just not like that. Because we're not him. First of all, the person that you're confessing to might simply refuse to forgive you. They might just go, yeah, no, we're done. And they have the right to do that. God will never do that. They have the right to do that. Now, let me come over here and make a little statement to the side, just to be real clear. 
They have the right to do that, but not if they're Christians. Because the Bible says explicitly that forgiveness is not optional. Guys, I don't even know what theological container to put this in, but Jesus says, if you don't forgive others of their sins, your sins won't be forgiven. I don't even know what to do with that other than to believe it and to then conclude that if you've got unforgiveness in your heart, it's a spiritual emergency. It's a crisis. It's a five-alarm fire. Drop everything. Deal with that now. That's number one right now. Right now. So, now that I've made that clear, back over to where I was here. They might just not forgive you. And they have that right. They might not be Christians. Or they might, this is pretty common, they might be Christians who are deluded about what I said over there. And so they might simply just not forgive you. But let's say that's not what happens. Let's say that you, this is a, you, you were wise enough to sin against a wonderful person. Um, and even in, that didn't come out right. Um, but let's, let's say that their response is the absolute best case scenario. And that person chooses to forgive and to restore and to meet you with all of the grace and the mercy that they can possibly muster. But even in that best case scenario, they aren't like God. They aren't God. And even in the best case, that person will be choosing to do their best to be like God and they will not do it perfectly. To forgive someone means to cancel a debt. It means you hurt me and now you owe me, but I'm not going to make you pay. Okay? It doesn't mean, by the way, that you reestablish trust or you restore the relationship right to where it was. I know there's a lot of questions about that. But it's saying, I will, you hurt me, you owe me, I'm not going to make you pay. Acknowledge the wrong, not make them pay. But even in the best case, you've got to realize that person is going to struggle to do that, especially if the consequences of your sins against them are ongoing, as they often do. Unlike God, who chooses to forgive once and for all, whoosh, it's all done. They, they may have to, like, make that choice again and again. Like, every day they have to wake up and say, I'm choosing to walk in forgiveness today. And some days they'll, walk, they'll wake up and not make that choice. And on those days they'll try to make you pay. Because in the best case, that person cannot do what God does, which is cast your, seasons, cast your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. The fact is, the past will still haunt the relationship to some degree. And finally, guys, even in the very best case, that person, especially when we're talking about a downed hoke here, they simply cannot wipe away the consequences of your sin and restore the relationship in one fell swoop the way that God does, even if they want to. It's a fallen world, world, we're still in it, and there's still a mess that has to be cleaned up. And now, the work has to be done by both of you to clear the path and ultimately to restore. And you should know, by the way, if you agree to forgive, that's what you're agreeing to do. You cancel the debt that they owe, and then, together, with all the hurt feelings there, and all the frustration, and all the disappointment, together you clean the path between the two of you. And whether you're the person confessing or the person forgiving, that's really hard work, but it's really good work and it's healing work, and it's beautiful work, and it might be the most godly thing you ever do, and I, I just, I promise you it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. All right, so the band's going to come, or someone is going to come and help me sort of wrap this thing up a little bit. I just want to make one little thing off to the side as we move towards Selah, a time of reflection. Um... Oh, here you go, Dan. I took this from you. I don't know if you need it, but you can have it back. 
Just as a side note, I just want to say that when it comes to confession and forgiveness, it gets messy because the relationships and the problems, they're complicated and they're messy and that just sort of works itself out. When you're trying to clean things up, it gets complicated and there's a bunch of questions that arise. And the principles that I've laid out here, I believe they're biblical, I believe they're all accurate, I believe they hold in every circumstance, but there's still a lot of, but yeah, buts, and what about this, you know? Like, I'll just give you an example. It's a hard one, but it, it illustrates the point. Somebody, after teaching on forgiveness, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I, uh, I broke up with my boyfriend uh, because he beat me up. And I said, good call. Good job by you. And they said, yeah, but if I forgive him, you know, I can't make him pay for what he did. So does that mean that I have to take him back? And I said, oh, no. Oh, no. Because forgiveness is not the same thing as reestablishing trust, and it's not the same thing as restoring the relationship back to where it was. So absolutely not. In fact, you should press charges because this jerk should be in jail. Oh, I can't do that. That would be punishing him. Oh, no, no. You have to cancel the debt that he owes you. It's not your job or your right to cancel a debt that's owed to society. You press charges. He should be in jail. So what am I saying? It sounds kind of simple when the preacher says it, but then in real life happens, it gets really complicated, and there's a lot of yeah, buts, and whatabouts. I know. Just really quickly. Like, I'll be here for like a minute. I'd love for you to hang out and ask me questions afterwards as much as you like, but I'm, then I'm gone, right? I just want to say, that's what pastors are for. And Lindsay and Chad are like really, really good pastors. And they have thought through and prayed through all of this stuff, and they would love to work this through with you to help you figure out what it looks like to do godly confession and then godly forgiveness. Hey, we're gonna have Selah a couple of minutes here to pray. Um, I'll get us started and then you'll have a little bit of time to pray on your own. King Jesus, you are good. You are beautiful. I just wanna say it's really, really good to be yours. To know you and follow you to strive to be like you. It's just, it's a gift to follow you. It's a gift to know your ways and pursue them. Even when they're hard, it's a gift. It's good to know and follow you. We've got a room full of people and I think would really like to do that. Just know and follow you. But I just want to ask that you would be so kind right now to highlight the forest of our lives and Maybe just remind us in our hearts, and our spirits of the relationships, the trails that have uh, gotten bogged down with a lot of dead wood. And then we would take this time to listen to what you're saying about how we should proceed. You've made it clear you gave your life for this. You've made it clear that it's worth it. Help us to follow your example. And God, give us tremendous wisdom to do so in a way that's pleasing to you. All right, you guys have a moment or two on your own.